Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, El Hosto, the hostess Ding Dong, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a fine show for you this week. We're going to talk to critic Matthew Ehrlich about the new episodes of Ozark that have appeared on Netflix. Ozark is a show that we haven't talked about before. It was high time that we did so. And I'm also going to talk to Daniel Cohen, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, TV cooking shows. And why, and specifically, we like watching chefs get eliminated. Everywhere around the world, right now, there are dozens of chefs being eliminated, and I'm sure it's very painful for them. But first, we're going to talk about Pam and Tommy, a miniseries on Hulu about the Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee sex tape. God help us all. It's on TV once again. And Paula Schaefer will be here right after this musical interlude to discuss it with us. If you had told me that I was going to have to watch a miniseries about the Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee sex tape and that the show was going to star Lily James, Sebastian Stan and Seth Rogen, I would have said, I am not going to watch that. There's nothing you could pay me. There's nothing you, you couldn't pay me enough to make me watch that. And sure enough, I have not. I have not watched Pam and Tommy. Uh, and I will not watch Pam and Tommy. I just, I, my, my level of interest in this material is very low. However, it's very popular. And when I posted uh, that on my social media feed, several people chimed in and said this was in their wheelhouse. One of the people who did so was our frequent television critic, Paula Schaefer. And she has now watched Pam and Tommy. Uh, so we don't have to. Paula's here to talk to us about it. Hello. Hey there, yeah. You always pick the good hills to die on. I mean, th- this one, you were correct. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, all right. So, this is a show about the sex tape. Now, you'd think a show about a sex tape would be sexy. And yet, y- your review doesn't make it doesn't make it sound that sexy. Well, I was not watching it for it to be sexy. What I was looking for is that kind of like, let's look now with the lens of of today back on things that happened to ladies in the 90s. You know, kind of like even the People versus OJ had that with like Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark, making Marsha Clark into this very human, hurt person. And you could see what it did to her to be dragged in the media or like I, Tanya. Right. Well, those were both terrific uh, products, though. That was a great show, and that was a great right. movie. And and I, Tonya, was directed by Craig uh, Gillespie, or Gillespie, however you say it, and he directed several episodes of Pam and Tommy. So I was like, he's in it. Lil- Lily James is in this. This could be great. It was not. It seems to me that it spends a lot of time focusing on Seth, Ro- Seth Rogen and Nick Offerman they play the guys who make the sex tape, right, and who market it. And it, seems, it strikes me that the show spends a lot of time lingering on them. It really does, especially in the first, you know, couple episodes, which are all that are out right now. I think there are five out now. But 
it's very much like, look at this sad sack. And it's like, look how sad he is. He's so poor. How can you blame him for stealing from Tommy Lee? Because Tommy Lee was a jerk. Nobody wants to see that. I think, you know, it's hard to overestimate how popular Pamela Anderson Lee was at her height. I mean, now she's a, obviously she's still a a well-known celebrity, but at the height, I mean, she was like, she was the sexiest woman alive. And for a show that's supposed to be about her to like focus on a sad sack handyman played on by Seth Rogen, who, whether you like him or not, I don't think you could really call him a, a sex symbol. You know, it just, just strikes me as as like a weird way to focus. It is very lacking in focus. And what's interesting is supposedly James Franco was supposed to play Tommy Lee in the first place, but they didn't since he was canceled because of the whole Me Too thing and his like wildly inappropriate behaviors towards women. But this whole product is a wildly inappropriate behavior towards one woman in particular. Like they seem to give more empathy to Tommy Lee's penis than they do to a real, you know, a living woman and her personal agency. Yeah, we'll talk about Tommy Lee's penis in a second, but I, I I wanted to say, like, I just feel like I know that James Franco has been canceled and is like the definition of a problematic Hollywood man. But and just in terms of pure casting is a better choice just because of the sleaze factor to play Tommy Lee than Bucky Barnes himself, Sebastian Stan, who is the definition of a generic Hollywood man. Yeah. And maybe that's because I, you know, I haven't forgiven Sebastian Stan for those therapy sessions from uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but he's very wimpy and weak sauce when, you know, James Franco would have been the right amount of sleaze for this product. Well, well, exactly. That's exactly right. Like, yes, yes. Sebastian Stan is handsome and he was probably easy to work with, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and you can't discount that, but, you know, he should be playing. World War II soldiers and like leads and romantic, like second leads in romantic comedies. Maybe a nice guy lawyer. Yeah, a nice guy lawyer. You know, James, James Franco, on the other hand, is is like the essence of a sleazy hipster. Who is erratic and has that like untapped kind of like I'm a wild card thing that Tommy Lee had. And it feels like Sebastian Stan is just pretending like, wouldn't it be cool if I was like this? And I never could get past that into his performance because it felt very much like he was just in a costume because the show is very much about the costume and the prosthetics and the makeup and the hair. At least Lily James. I mean, I don't, she's hardly one of my favorite uh, screen presences. She's often like, you know, cast in these extremely boring roles, but she is very beautiful. Um, And I can see her as Pamela Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And she she's she's very good. She seems to have really thought about like the way that Pam carried herself and the way that she would use her hair and her voice and her mannerisms and how she was kind of trapped in this. Like, I have to be people pleasing and I have to keep being super desirable to everybody around me. Yeah, that, that, it may be that Lily James has some experience with that. <laughs> possibly, possibly she's encountered that once or twice as an actress. <laughs> I, I was shocked, shocked to learn that there's actually a talking penis. It's one thing to have talking penises on Big Mouth, which is a sex cartoon. 
Right, which this this penis is voiced by Jason Manzukis, also from Big Mouth. So there you go. It's like somebody saw that and just called him up immediately, like, "Hey, we just watched this cartoon. Do it for real." So, like, is it like an animated penis? It's like animatronic. Like they they made a mold of a penis and put wires and things on Sebastian Stan's body. No, no. No, who's going to watch that? <laughs> Apparently a lot of people. I don't know. <laughs> that just sounds terrible. I'm sorry. It, it The show, I, I did really want to see it because of those things mentioned and Nick Offerman, who I have a real soft spot for, like many ladies my age. And uh, no, it just felt gross. It was kind of like trauma porn. Yeah. Like, oh, we just know she's being abused. And, you know, I don't know if they're going to include the actual domestic violence that she encountered with Tommy or anything like that, or if they're just trying to focus on it. It's very out of focus. It's a scattered, out of focus, sloppy misinterpretation, <laughs> misfire. They just did it all wrong. All right. Pam and Tommy now airing on Hulu. You have Paula Schaefer's glowing endorsement here. <laughs> Thanks for stopping in. Oh, you bet. The age of peak premium TV has passed, I would say, but there are still some remnant type series floating around that that bear the mark you better call Saul Succession and others and on Netflix you have Ozark starring Jason Bateman and Laura Linney which just started its fourth and final season Uh, and we we finally published an article about Ozark Matthew Ehrlich one of our TV critics uh, chimed in and is an Ozark viewer and fan Matthew hello Hey, how's it going? Good, yeah. So, you know, I kind of um, faded out of Ozark in the middle of season two. It was a lot of episodes. And while I did like it and I appreciated what it was up to, you know, it was was kind of like I had a hard time finishing Breaking Bad because everything was so suspenseful and intense. And it doesn't sound like they've let they've taken their foot off the gas. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you were saying about like peak premium TV being in its, I would say it's in its late phase. Like it's still glorious and fantastic, but definitely like the golden age has passed. The Sopranos breaking bad. Ozark is kind of like taking the elements of those peak premium television shows and repackaging them to make them as exciting as, and as compelling as possible in a very sort of knowing way. Right. But it still has, it has the same elements. You know, Jason Bateman plays a guy named Marty Bird, who is really like an accountant, like a glory. He's a financial consultant and he, and he launders money for the Mexican drug cartels and finds himself in the opening episode. He and his family go on the run to Missouri where in the Ozarks, Lake of the Ozarks, where they basically become a crime family in, in their own right. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great premise. And the sort of um, fish out of water element is there too. You know, they're, they're, from, they're from suburban Chicago. They're very, they're very blue state. They don't actually have any particular politics, except that Laura Linney's character, Wendy, did work for Barack Obama. So they're Democrats. They're like rich Democrats. And 
Lake of the Ozarks is a you know shining capital of red state America. So there's that there's that dichotomy. There's a culture clash there. Right. It's like rural versus urban, essentially. And then what's also interesting is that Marty is, you know, unlike The Sopranos, where, you know, Tony Sopranos is essentially born into this crime family. He just kind of ascends as we as we enter the drama. Marty is actually quite uh, squeaky clean at the beginning of the series. And it takes sort of a squeaky clean person who notices discrepancies to hide those discrepancies. He becomes very attractive to underworld figures. And it's also, I mean, it's very admirable the way this uh, this show is about money laundering, which is actually in and of itself kind of a boring subject. It's all about math and stuff. And yet, you know, it is really quite exciting and compelling. For a show about money laundering, there's there's a lot of gun violence. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, there it, it's as violent as Breaking Bad. Maybe not quite as violent as The Sopranos. There's 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 a lot of action. There's car chases. There's fires. You know, there there are there are many murders. I mean, again, I only got through probably 14 episodes or so of the there's show. There's not a lot of like the what I call drug porn, where you know, in Breaking Bad, there was something kind of like compelling about like what meth does to you and the toothless people that it produces and the desperation and the nasty hotels like in the ozarks there's sort of this um you know there isn't a lot of that really going on there's there's a lot of violence definitely um but there you don't really see the drugs themselves very often no the characters are selling drugs and right. and laundering money from the selling of drugs not necessarily doing the drugs right. you know the the real uh twist and in innovation of Ozark well there there's strong female characters you know Laura Linney as Marty's wife Wendy is uh you know a very uh, interesting and strong character you know and played by you know one of our great actresses and then you have uh Ruth Langhorn uh, yeah Julia Garner yeah fantastic you know one of the one of the great uh Performances, you know, Julia Garner uh, first came to our attention on The Americans. I don't know if you watched The Americans. Yes. Heartbreaking on that, yeah, and The Assistant as well. She was amazing in that. She was strikingly good, and it's also striking looking. She's got this curly blonde hair that is not not sort of typical. This is a star making performance for, and an Emmy nominated performance for Julia Garner. And you know, the way the show the show is, I would say there's two protagonists: there's Marty Bird, and then there's her, then there's Ruth. Right. And they're kind of mirror opposites in a sense that she's got he's got a very good reputation, uh, um, which he's then, you know, belying by essentially dabbling in this money laundering. And she's actually this sort of, uh, you know, petty criminal that underneath it, actually, you know, she she manages the strip club really well. Everything that he sends her out to do, she does really beautifully and very well. And she actually, you know, is keeping her, her family together and so forth. And competent. And um, I wouldn't, she has a code, some sort of moral code. I mean, it's warped, but it's there. And, you know, it, it, you could give it away. I don't think that those two characters are on an arc where they sleep together either. Like they're business partners, an older man and a younger woman who are essentially business partners and equals and it's a mentorship thing. And there's, there's not a lot of ickiness there. And I, I think that's, that's an interesting dynamic as well. Right. Right. And the relationship that she had with Wendy at one point was really sort of lovely the way that there's like a woman in her life that she sort of, she aspires to be. Someone who could bandage her gaping head wounds that she gets because she's a <laughs> professional criminal essentially. So, you know, Ozark, it's not a show for uh, the faint hearted. 
there's always people in peril, terrible peril, really. And then, you know, we don't, we haven't even mentioned the bird's children. They have two teenage children. Yeah, who kind of takes center stage uh, during season, first half of season four. Um, Charlotte becomes a lot closer. You know, Charlotte's kind of rebellious at, at the first three seasons. She's kind of distancing herself from the family. And then she comes rather close to Wendy, you know, in sort of the typical way that teenage girls do when they get older and they're about to go away to college and that sort of tension that you have with your mother kind of clears. And then it becomes very clear that Wendy is kind of going to join the family business in a very you know righteous way. Whereas uh, Jonah, the son, um, he's seen some things. Uh, he realizes that he basically becomes very good at money laundering himself. There's sort of this interesting thing where he's you know, rather upset about the fact that his family is going into crime, and yet he's becoming a criminal himself, but working for the, you know, the Snells, or what's left of the Snells, sort of as a way of rebelling against his family, like kind of beating them at their own game, but playing on a different team. You're a free agent, you can sign with whoever you want, right? Right. And then the other creepy thing is because of COVID, um, you know, production was shut down for a while. And this kid who really is supposed to be playing a 14 year old boy has gone through puberty and he now is a young adult. Uh, he's the actor is 18 years old in real life, but he's supposed to be playing a 14 year old. So there's something very unintentionally jarring about the fact that this kid has like aged literally. That's an odd side plot of the pandemic. <laughs> To say the least, uh, and, but it's it's something very astute to notice. Uh, Matthew, your uh, article on Ozark is up on Book and Film Globe now. Season two, do you know when they're uh, dropping that? Uh, they just did. Oh, season two. Oh, I do not know when they're dropping. Season, I mean, plus part two of season four. Sorry, part two of season four. No, but we did determine that that um, car accident that happens in the first episode that's a flash forward uh we're going to see the outcome of that accident in the second half of the fourth season we did not get resolution to that uh at the first part of season four i'm guessing marty bird and his family aren't gonna like be in a diner listening to don't stop believing we're gonna get an actual resolution here right yeah, I mean, it seemed, and we know that this is the last season, so obviously something. Maybe we'll get it. Maybe we'll get a young Marty Bird like growing up as a, as a teenager <laughs> in Downers Grove, Illinois, or whatever. You know, just learning learning how to com- use you do math and doing doing small violence. Right. Well, this is also the first time Ruth talks about her mother uh, during the season, and this is the first time we've ever heard mention of her. So that's kind of, uh, you know, almost like they're, they're, they're setting the groundwork for a uh, better call Ruth's mother. So, all right, <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. Uh, Ozark yeah. is quality television. It may be the last quality television you'll ever see. So check it out. And Matthew, thanks for writing about it. And thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure as always. Ciao. So the most popular new show on television is not the trendy HBO show that you've been watching. And it's not something on Netflix that has been written about in every publication on earth. It's actually a show on Fox called Next Level Chef. And this is another Gordon Ramsay cooking competition. It's essentially MasterChef, but there's a few twists and turns. And 
I I found myself watching this thing rather obsessively. I don't watch it when it airs on Fox. I watch it the next day or a couple days later on Hulu. But I, I find myself watching it obsessively, and I find, and I realized, and I wrote a piece about this for the site. I realized, like, I have spent approximately seventy two percent of my adult life watching chefs get eliminated, and I wonder. Why? Why do I? Why do I? I mean, yes, I like food, but why do I enjoy watching chefs to disappear one by one until they crown a winner? I, I, I don't know. So I, I recruited Daniel Cohen, frequent book and film globe contributor, our gaming correspondent, someone who loves games and he loves food. And I thought Daniel could help me make some sense of this. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Neil. How you doing? I'm good. And I thought of you specifically because. I know that I, I, I somehow knew you were watching Next Level Chef. <laughs> well, did, did I make it obvious? Um, you know, it's it's really funny. I don't even know why I'm watching Next Level Chef. I think it was it debuted like after the New Year's Bowl games or something. And I was just like, I'll watch that. That's a Gordon Ramsay show that I've never heard of. And it's um, it's weirdly fascinating because it doesn't exactly play like the other shows that he's been on. There's these are not people necessarily who um, are, are about to embark on professional careers. You know what I'm saying? Well, there are a few professional kitchen type employees on the show, but the other people are like home chefs, like the ones you would see on Master Chef, which is his sort of signature project. And then you have these like TikTok and Instagram chef influencer types who are on there as well. So the show actually, uh, if you look at the like the Chirons when they're interviewing them, it actually divides them into the three categories of people that exist in the world of Next Level Chef, which is professional chef, home chef, and social media chef. Those are their titles. Right. And, and it's different than other shows because, if you, you know, Master Chef, which is, you know, a great show. I mean, it has its flaws and its own cheesy cliches, but those are all home chefs who are looking to fulfill their dream of becoming a restaurant quality chef. And of right. course, like, you know, Chopped and Top Chef, which are the creme de la creme of the cooking elimination shows. Those are all people who own restaurants or who are working at, in restaurants in fairly high positions. These are perfect culinary professionals. You know, next level chef is, is this, is this weird amalgam of people who want to look like they're chefs, but aren't actually. And even the professional chefs tend to be people that work at bank, like banquets and do catering. Like they aren't people who own their own restaurants or are about to open them anytime soon, which I think is, not a knock on them, but sort of speaks to the level of, of ambition in the show. These are the kinds of people who are available to do a, a sort of a bubbled cooking show during the right. pandemic. And okay, so the premise of Next Level Chef is very strange. At least for the first half of the season, the chefs were divided into three teams, one of which was captained by Gordon Ramsay, one of which was captained by annoying TV chef Richard Blaze, and then Naisha Harrington, who is not a famous or prominent or important chef as far as I can tell, but she was on Top Chef. The thing that's interesting about her is that she she always seemed like a very self-aware and sort of, she had a, she had a little bit of perspective maybe that a lot of, uh, you know, TV chefs don't tend to have. And I always thought she was kind of one of the more like engaging contestants on that show. I didn't expect to see her start to make like the, uh, the jump into like TV this quickly, but she's done commercials and things like that. Yeah, she does have a cool personality. And is obviously quite intelligent. She's, you know, she's very attractive. And I, I understand why she's on TV. I mean, there's, you don't look at her and think like, well, why do they pick her? I mean, it's obvious, but you, you know, it's like, she's a TV chef, which I guess is sort of appropriate for this because this is kind of just a 
TV chef show, but they, the teams are then divided and they're randomly assigned to one of three different kitchens on different levels of this enormous like chef uh, kitchen tower. And the top floor is like, it's like an Ikea kitchen, like a beautiful kitchen full of like top end appliances and, and cookware and like all blonde wood. And it's just ridiculously gorgeous. The middle level is sort of this industrial chef's kitchen, very standard, but good equipment. And the bottom is this strange, there's like toxic waste barrel, fake toxic waste barrels and rusted out old equipment and uh, ovens. Like torture chamber, basically. <laughs> Everything's on fire constantly and like just... The best is like when, when when they're in the bottom basement kitchen, which again is meant to be a punishment of sorts, and you look and see it's like, oh yeah, I have a strainer that looks just like that. Yeah, of course. I'm like, I'd kill for those tongs. <laughs> in my kitchen. Yeah. I, I saw I saw I saw a preview where where Gordon Ramsay's going through and he says like the water pressure isn't very good. <laughs> I'm like, at least you have water. I live in Texas. That's no guarantee. Fair enough. And, yeah, and so like you know, and then you then you like then the the dishes. They always call them dishes. They don't call it food. Like with the dish that that a lot of the chefs make in the bottom kitchen. Well, then there's the elevator. There's an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> an elevator. There's an elevator full of ingredients that goes it goes down floor by floor, starting on the top floor, and the contestants have thirty seconds to grab as much food as they can to make their food, their dish with, and they so okay now. No, I just want to point. I just want to point out that no one is doing the trick that I would do, which was like just shovel everything into your apron, no matter what—the <laughs> garnishes, the plates, everything. They're being very cheesy. It's like, oh, do I want the the foie gras or the hot dogs? And they're like, come on. Yeah, and then sometimes you know, sometimes a lobster makes it down to the basement, or a filet mignon it makes it down to the basement because someone doesn't see it. So what you have is basically it doesn't really matter where they're cooking the food. A little baby, a little better on the top floor than on the bottom floor, but it's it, it's it's pretty. Um, it doesn't really matter. So I'm just I watch the show, and I've been I've been watching it every week, and I'm just like, why? Yeah, I want them to be cooking with actual garbage, and they're not. And and it's it's yeah, on the bottom floor that is, but it does give Gordon Ramsay uh, my favorite thing, which is like a weekly chance to berate everybody for not choosing a protein that made it to the basement, which is about the only time that anybody in the top floor receives any sort of like condemnation from him. Right. Right. Like why did you, why did you allow that delicious medallion of pork to get to the basement? Right, exactly. So you, you, you've, you've failed me. I mean, I know he's making millions of dollars doing this show, but how can, how can they possibly be paying him enough? I mean, they can't take they be taking this seriously. This isn't even MasterChef, which is like uh, you know, which is like the American Idol of cooking. They're all they're all a little a little checked out. It's it's, it's Gordon Ramsay on Xanax, it's, it, which I, I kind of like because it can be uncomfortable in Hell's Kitchen to watch him verbally, verbally abuse people. But here it's just like, yeah, you know, you had a saddle of lamb you could have used, and instead you you picked the scallops. They don't all even judge the food every week. So some weeks they just, they're like, well, one of us is going to taste it. And the other two are going to come in at the end and give us. <laughs> Inevitably, there'll be a tiebreaker and it'll go to my chef because I saw him cook it. And, but now they've, they've gotten rid of the teams. They're kind of halfway through the season. Right. This is another interesting thing that I liked. They're not affiliated with, with certain chefs anymore. Now they're all on their own. And there was a great moment in the elevator where they were talking about like we used to pray for each other before we went, we went into this kitchen. And now it's like, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Now it's getting brutal. Now, now you see that, that, the big, uh, the big professional chef, burly black guy, who's obviously going to win. 
<laughs> rule. He's he's the, the, the most broadly competent chef on the show by far. But obviously, the you know, from the beginning, it's either going to be him or the Native American woman who's going to win. And and you, uh, I don't know, about, I don't know about that. Uh, her, her, special, her specialty is indigenous fusion cuisine, by the way, which is a great phrase. Hey, it's very representational of of her. Sure, <laughs> but I, I we got, we got, we are talking about Trisha because Trisha is the main character of the show by far. Oh, the the, um, the, the social media chef who who. Uh, it has a really wispy voice and and, yes. and cries constantly. Yes, and has a ton of Twitch followers. Um, and and yeah, basically, as far as I can tell, starts each episode with no self confidence and gradually builds to like an emotional climax where she's like, "I can do it. I've proved my parents correct that I didn't go to law school and it all worked out." No, she was a she was a successful corporate uh, something executive. Yeah, sorry, yeah, exactly. And, and that's right. She left her six, she left her six figure job. My, my mistake. She's one of those. Uh, but she could win too. It doesn't matter though. You know, I, I, it all just kind of melds together. Like I'm watching this. I, I, I watched I, you watched Chopped, right? Yeah, quite a bit. They, they had this Casino Royale tournament, which was just like episodes of Chopped, except that the uh, contestants could roll dice to get rid of an ingredient and replace it with another ingredient at a craps table. And if you rolled an odd number, then you got a bad ingredient like durian or something. If you rolled an even number, you got, you could get a good ingredient. Like, I don't, I don't know, like morel mushrooms or summer truffles or something like that. I haven't seen it, but this speaks so perfectly to my love of, of gambling and cooking shows. It, you know, but again, you know, it was chopped, but with a little gambling. And they also got to gamble about the pri- the final prize money. And it was basically standard chop, but with some gambling. And I was watching that. And I was watching, uh, I'm watching Next Level Chef. And then I was watching, I'm watching that season of MasterChef that they just put up on Hulu because I didn't watch it while it was, it was on this year. And then, and then I just, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going all in. I'm watching Wall of Chefs. Have you ever seen Top Chef Canada or any of any of the Canadian spinoffs of these shows? Yeah, yes, Top Chef Canada is fantastic. By the way, I know, I know it's a total sidebar, but it's like the fact that they're like chefs you've never heard of, and brands and and like companies you've never heard of, and even Canadian celebrities you've never heard of, but they re- reuse all the challenges from Top Chef. It's a great, great show. Yeah, Wall of Chefs is like they face all these like culinary gods of Canada, a couple of whom have have occasionally leaked down like. Hugh Atchison was on the pilot of Wall of Chefs. You know, he's a top chef judge. And I was just like, how much could they possibly have paid him? And I'm watching like, I'm watching something called the Vegas Chef Prize Fight. You see the promos for that and and it looks horrible. But it's something to eat lunch too, because the the, the marquee ones I have to watch with my wife. <laughs> I have to wait. Right. So she's like, you can watch Vegas Chef Prize Fight. I have to go, I have to go uh, write some letters or something. Are you a worst cooks in America, man? You know, I watched a few seasons of Worst Cooks in America as well, but I even watched Celebrity Worst Cooks in America. Oh man, that was great! <laughs> it's it's fascinating. It's it's like Anne Burrell in full like Helga She Wolf of the Kitchen mode, just terrorizing these poor people that literally don't know how to boil water. And and you know the ambition level there is like, I want to make a meal for my family that doesn't kill them. Right. It's it's great. You know, then there's the Great British Baking Show. And the only line I will not cross for chefs getting eliminated is uh, ho- like holiday baking championship. Like I, won't watch, <laughs> I won't watch Christmas baking. I, I guess I might watch like a Hamantaschen competition or something. I, I won't. I don't understand spooky baking. Like there's no such thing as scary pastries to me. Like I, don't, I, I won't I won't go there. I don't. 
do cake decorating. Um, so I do have some. But if they made a Hanukkah version, you'd be, you'd be right there. I would watch a Hanukkah baking championship, yes. <laughs> oh, how about this? America's next great Seder chef. Nice. I like it. Top Seder. <laughs> Top Seder. You have to make you have to make a Seder. But that, that would just have to be a special. Like you could do a- The finale is the finale is trying to find the Afikoma and it lasts like <laughs> right. it lasts like six yeah, hours. But 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 ten thousand dollars hidden between the, the pieces of the Afikoma. But I, I guess while we're having an amusing conversation, we still haven't answered the question, Daniel. Why do we like watching chefs getting eliminated? What's with it? They're doing what we do every night, right? It's it's not. There's nothing special about making dinner, but maybe we just like to see people who are full of themselves fail, which certainly a lot of these chefs are and do. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. I, I I've seen so many chefs get eliminated that that I, I I can't remember them all. It's like a graveyard. It's like it's like the it's like literally the Hunger Games. Yeah, I think part of the fascination for me is sort of. Where does the ambition to be a, a good chef stop and the ambition to be a good you know, television person begin? And there are clearly like a lot of people who are not ready to be television fixtures who sort of have graduated into this like circuit and, and they reappear on shows. And, and that used to be unusual, but now it's like it's part of their resume that like they, they, they won on Chopped. So that sort of gets them to the next level. It's almost like watching like like minor league baseball or something where, you know, you can come up from beat Bobby Flay and sort of eventually wind up on MasterChef or whatever. There's, there's a continuum to all that. It's, it's never clear whether it's more about the food or the recognition for them. And that's not necessarily true of people in other types of reality shows. We understand that people go on reality shows because they want to be famous. That's understandable. But doing it in the context of, of like professional cuisine, you know, there's another another track there. And I, I it's never really clear to me whether or not people who get eliminated are uh, happy with what what got them there in the first place. It is true that like some people who get bu- like get bumped off of these shows early end up judging the shows, you know, two or three years later. I'm like, what in the world is Carla Hall doing <laughs> I'll tell you what Carla, Carla Hall is doing. She's making money and and not opening restaurants. Yeah. Oh, she doesn't have to. She's kind of a unique case because she opened a bunch of restaurants in New York that failed pretty uh, famously. Uh, her brand of, you know, Southern cooking did not necessarily resonate with the people of Brooklyn, but she's great on TV. People love her on TV. I mean, she's at this point, one of those sort of famous for being famous characters. Right. Well, I love my favorite moment uh, on any of these shows is when someone in their exit interview says, you haven't seen the last of me. And then I, I turn to my wife and I'm like, I think we've seen the last. I think, I think we've seen the last of you. Now bring on the next chef to be eliminated. <laughs> Daniel, this, we've really gotten to the bottom of one of society's great mysteries today. It's been a pleasure. Please pack your knives and go. Daniel Cohen, thank you so much. I hope there is an Afi Komen in your future, and I hope that you aren't eliminated from the kitchen anytime soon. Also, thanks to Matthew Ehrlich for stopping in to talk about Ozark with me. Always a pleasure to talk about Ozark and to talk with Matthew Ehrlich, for that matter. And thanks so much to Paula Schaefer for sacrificing her brain and her time to watch uh, Pam and Tommy 
on Hulu. God help us all if we watch that show. I'm Neil Pollock. I am the greatest living American writer. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish content nearly every day about the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for reading the site. Please pack your knives and go. I'm going to do the things that I want to. I ain't got a thing to prove to you. I'll eat my candy with the pork and beans. Excuse my manners if I've been seen. I ain't going to wear the clothes that you like. Original Production.